Welcome to the Top Order podcast. We've got a pact this week in cricket for you. Australia, Pakistan going on. Babar and Rizwan saving the second test. We've got West Indies and England, some pitch concerns and plans for the spinners. Women's World Cup is really hotting up, but looks like the White Ferns are all but gone from the competition on home soil. And we've got New Zealand and the Netherlands all coming up on the Top Order podcast. Stay tuned. Baldy, we'll start with your countrymen taking on Pakistan on some pretty flat pitches um, in Lahore at the moment following yeah, a couple of state highways um, in Rawalpindi um, earlier in the tour. We're about halfway through the test match, aren't we? So not able to confirm or deny any potential result, but certainly looks good for batting again. Usman Kawaja continuing his rich vein of form with 91 in the first innings for Australia. Um, but yeah, we're uh, what, into day three or, or thereabouts now. And you look, I guess a draw looks like it might be certainly, if not the favourite result, um, one of the favourite results uh, coming out of this test match um, in Pakistan. Yeah, and that's the real shame, isn't it? That only for the third time this century we're looking down the barrel of a nil-all series draw in a three-test series, and that's really unfortunate. It's not a great advertisement for bringing cricket back to Pakistan. I'm not sure it's entirely the organisers' fault that we're staring down the barrel of, of three three drawn tests, but it is going to work out that way. And I think there's going to be a lot of criticism that people are going to level at pitchers in particular off the back of this series based on the number of runs scored and the number of wickets that have or haven't fallen. Just to uh, back up the truck a little bit, I think we, we kind of, we ended or we did our last podcast during the last couple of sessions of that second test and we were, you know, talking about Lyon and, and Schwepson and, you know, not necessarily bowling Australia to the draw, uh, sorry, to the victory, but uh, they probably did have their chances to win that game. Well, what do you think about the, the bowlers' performance at the end there, uh, Stu? I'll throw to you. Yeah, I think it's a good point that you make really around uh, that they had the chances to win because, yeah, we were sort of debating, uh, I think at the time we were talking about whether Swepson will feel happy about his debut and all that sort of stuff. And kind of just as we finished talking about him, it went drop catch, next ball, drop catch. And yeah, I mean, you know, th- those are the things that they win that game and suddenly we're not probably not having this conversation necessarily about the pitch. We might not ha- be having the conversation about you know, Nathan Lyon even struggling and, and all of that sort of stuff. And, yeah, it's a completely different narrative. And it, and it goes to show, you know, I think we've seen it in the, the Women's World Cup with some of the, the catches that have gone down in that tournament that, I mean, you know, very much a cliche, but catches do win matches. And, uh, yeah, it's they definitely had their chance, Australia, and I think they'll be ruining that the way that this test is, is shaping up this third one. It's interesting, isn't it? Since the departure of Tim Payne, Australia look like they've gone downhill in the field, particularly in that slips catching and behind the stumps catching department. Yeah, okay, there were a couple of tough chances dropped in front of the wicket, but I've been quite surprised, and I think the Australian team on reflection will be disappointed this summer and this tour with how their catching has um, has been behind the wicket. Normally, they're a very, very good catching side, but I think a few changes to the slips court and a change to that wicketkeeper first slip relationship, which I think is underrated in test cricket in terms of that kind of combination, has really cost Australia. I mean, you only have to look back at the Ashes. There were three or four chances that went between keeper and first slip. Australia have tried something funky in this series to try and bring slip up 
almost in front of wicketkeeper Carey, but I don't think it's really worked for Australia, and Australia have been uncharacteristically sloppy in that cordon, and it has cost them big time in this Test Series, and it almost cost them in the Ashes as well. And we, we should probably mention, uh, obviously, that uh, Rizwan and Baba, we mentioned it at the time, I think that they were going well, but I mean, unbelievable effort, and I don't think, you know, as, as much as the pitch was uh, was very flat for batting, you just sort of don't come back from those situations where you're that far behind in the game and you have to bat for 170 overs. So, you know, I think that that can't go without huge praise and, um, yeah, wonderful effort that they put on in that game. Oh, absolutely incredible performance. No one has batted for a 1,000 balls in timed test matches in the fourth innings. The last time anyone batted for that length of time to save a test match was 1939, and the only reason that that test match stopped is someone had to get on a boat and go home. So Pakistan could still be batting now if if we were in a timeless <laughs> test situation. And we have a look at the first innings of the third test and they're still batting. I mean, I'm thinking back to Bradman bats and bats and bats. Well, it's a case of 90 years later, Pakistan bat and bat and bat. They're batters. They're top five, top six in this test series. You have to give them credit. As, as toothless as Australia have looked with the ball, you have to give Pakistan credit for just the incredible run of high scores that they have managed to amass in this test series. And that's really been the difference between Pakistan and Australia. When the Pakistan batters have got in, most of the time they've gone on to get really, really big scores. Imam al-Haq, Azhar Ali, Rizwan, Baba Razam, they've all gone on to get hundreds. And other than Usman Khawaja, Australia have, have not been able to capitalise. You have a look at this first innings of the test match that's going on right now. Five Australians got into the 30s, I believe, um, or at least past 25 if you count Travis Head that makes it five and none of them have gone on to score 100 whereas you look at the ball the ball on the other side and Pakistan batters especially that top six have gone on to make really really big daddy hundreds when it counts and that's why they've been in either the commanding seat in the first test or able to bat for an unprecedented period of time in the second test to save the match and look you've got to give them credit for that I think. You must be happy though uh, Baldy with the performance of Cameron Green and Alex Carey uh, so far, definitely from that second innings of the uh, the second test and, and the first innings of this test with the, the 50s they've scored and almost hundreds. Uh, they've definitely kicked on, uh, not leaving it to the top five. They are scoring some runs in that lower order as well. Yeah, that's been really pleasing, particularly Cameron Green. I mean, he's still hasn't quite cracked it to get it into the 90s and get that maiden test century that he looks poised now to be able to achieve, but he's starting to look much more assured than he was if we wind back to November, December last year. The first couple of tests of that Ashes series, he looked a little bit at sea and people were starting to ask questions. So from a batting point of view, very, very happy with the starts that they've got. But overall, Australia as a batting unit will reflect on this series, I think, and rue the chances that they've had getting in on good batting wickets, not going on and getting those big daddy hundreds. And that's the difference between drawn tests and tests where you only have to bat once and can and can be in a commanding position regardless of whether or not you bat first or second. But yes, their batting has been improved. I think Kerry's work behind the stumps still has some way to go, uh, particularly in his combination with first slip because that's really been the Achilles heel for Australia in these last eight or nine tests. Binksy, I'm sure you'll have comments about that keeping, but uh, I just want to say Alex Kerry falling into that hotel pool has just turned his batting around. Unbelievable. 
Yeah, so look, I guess falling into that um, pool certainly helped because the, the runs seemed to have dried up and, until he managed to, to do that. So, yeah, look, absolutely. I think that that's probably kick-started the, the tour uh, and and perhaps look a, a, a little bit of a, um, I guess uh, you can't have a renaissance when you're only six or seven tests into your career, I guess. But um, yeah, certainly seems to have done the batting um, no harm. Uh, Baldy, I guess the other thing, and we'll come on to this, I suppose, with West Indies, England, declarations, under the spotlight again. I guess if we look back in hindsight from our comments uh, a little over a week ago, uh, Pat Cummins got that absolutely right. 97 for two um, declared. Um, and Because that was the difference between the two sides, really. I think if that had have had an extra you know, 15 overs in it, it could have been squeaky bum time for, for Australia. I, I, I guess that I don't want to predetermine the result, but it, it looks like this test you know, it is probably heading... Um, in the way of another draw, unless things really do accelerate very quickly. As, look, historically they have done in Pakistan. You know, the third day has often been moving day. You've seen the pitches really start to deteriorate on that sort of day three, early day four, and the game sort of really accelerates. We've not seen that, though, in Karachi and and Raul Pindi, whether we're going to see that in Lahore. But I I, I guess because this podcast is going to come out before, look, I guess the conclusion of that match, if it is three draws, who who do you think takes um, the honours out of this series in, in terms of the return to international cricket, really, for one of the big three nations, at least, at, for touring Pakistan? And, you know, an Australian side that owned the Ashes um, and then with similar personnel, you know, hasn't been able to make that same dominance felt with the ball. Yeah, and that's going to be the thing that's kind of come out in a negative light for Australia is failing to win a test match. I'm quite happy for Australia to lose a test match in Pakistan uh, if they get outplayed or if Pakistan win the toss and bat in a pitch or a a set of conditions that deteriorate and favour one side winning the toss. But that hasn't really been the case here. Both sides have made big runs in both innings of test matches, the 148 notwithstanding for Pakistan being bowled out in the second test. But Australia haven't been able to take the 20 wickets or even get close to taking the 20 wickets that they need to win either of these test matches. And if it does result in a 3-0 draw, that's really going to hurt Australia's chances at getting into the World Test Championship final because winning test matches gets you the maximum amount of points and drawing test matches gets you less than 50%. As I recall, I think it's only like 33% of the available points. So Australia will come away from this having gone overseas to Pakistan, missing an opportunity to pick up crucial World Test Championship points. And unfortunately for some of their bowlers, will be left with a case of not having done the job and bowled Australia to victory, having scored runs and put themselves in that position to do so in the second test. I um, I agree with that. I think, you know, from a World Test Championship point of view, it's not great for Australia. It's not great for Pakistan either, but um, not great for Australia. But I think from a, you know, from a points victory, from a, I'm going to use the word moral, but I don't think that's the right word, moral victory point of view, Pakistan prepared pitches they knew that Australia would struggle on. Australia haven't lost. Australia haven't really looked like losing, really. Um, so I think that from a points victory, Australia has gone overseas to somewhere which uh, they haven't gone for 20 years, 24 years or whatever it is, um, baldy. So I think they've done really well. And if they can come away with a victory, uh, that would be even better. But uh, it's not looking like anyone's going to come away with a victory mm. uh, anytime soon. And just to wrap that up, that is the real sad thing as an outcome of the series, that we didn't see exciting finishes in all three tests. We saw a bit of an exciting finish in the will they or won't they hold on for the draw in, in the second test, Pakistan batted for a very long time. And that is 
delightful if you're a Pakistan fan to be able to achieve that. But from a neutral, I'm sure, perspective, people will want to see exciting close finishes day four, day five, and a result at the end of those test matches. So that's been the only real fly in the ointment as far as this return to test cricket in Pakistan is concerned. Uh, But so far, so good in terms of the security, the atmosphere has been fantastic. There's been lots of fan involvement, which has been great. So all of those um, sort of side things, things that go on around the the on-field action have all been really good, which is great to see. We'll move on, but stick with test cricket. West Indies... England third test about to get underway in uh, the beautiful setting in Grenada uh, following um, I I think a a game at Bridgetown which was described by some of the West Indian players as feeling a bit more like Trent Bridge with the amount of England fans in the ground. We've got to start though I think with um, the elephant in the room from both this series and that Australia-Pakistan series and that is test cricket's pitch problem. Lippy, I'm going to come to you first. Does Test cricket at the moment have a have a pitch problem? Do we need to see the ICC stepping in? Um, you know, I know I've got some thoughts on this. I'm sure Raj and Baldy will as well. But your thoughts on that first and foremost? I can't say I have really strong thoughts, and and that's mainly because part of me thinks you know maybe this is just a blip because up until this these couple of series, we've been thinking to ourselves. Uh, every test finishes. I think when we, we've been doing our previews lately, we've always been saying, oh, there's pretty much no draws now. So you just pick, you know, if it's a three-test series, you're always picking 2-1, 3-0, whatever. You're just never factoring in a draw. So, you know, if thinking about it that way, maybe these pitches are just anomalies. But then you throw into the stuff, all the conversations people have been having about Indian pitches and do they spin too much and even New Zealand pitches where they say, oh, look, it does too much on day one, which I you know, I don't think we've seen actually, and um, certainly this summer um, it hasn't reflected that uh, that argument. But, yeah, I don't know. I mean, you, you, can, you can look at it so many different ways, and when you actually think about these tests that have gone on, we actually have had tests that have gone into the final session of those day, or of the day five, with results in play and, and exciting-ish finishes potentially, but unfortunately they've all just petered out into to dull draws. So, yeah, maybe someone else wants to jump in that has stronger thoughts than me. So, I guess from my perspective, you know, I like to see runs being scored. I like to see a bit of stability within the batting innings. I prefer to see these tests that go to the fifth day than the ones that are finishing within three days. You know what I mean? I find that much more exciting, much more like test cricket. I mean, we have to actually give it to these teams that are going out there and playing these these five-day draws and scoring these uh, totals in excess of 450, 500 consistently. They're actually playing well. They're batting well. They're not making mistakes. They're not giving their wickets away. Um, so, uh, you know, it's test cricket at the end of the day. If nobody's making a mistake, then why not have a stalemate? It's a really difficult one because the, the purist in me wants to say that a test that goes into the final session with all three results still possible is good for the game. But I've got to say that I think in these two series particularly, and look, I've not seen a massive amount of Australia, Pakistan. Um, I've been watching it mainly on Quick Info, a little bit of the highlights. But I have watched a lot of the England-West Indies series and there's an entertainment factor missing for me with with the type of cricket that we've seen in these two test matches so far. 
the fact that you've got, you know, okay, a new ball attack from an England perspective that, you know, doesn't really scare you on paper. But a situation where Matthew Fisher as a debutant only bowls a couple of overs in that second innings, and even though he's got some pretty decent new ball pedigree for his county side, and and the fact that you've got somewhere like Kamar Roach, who is, you know, a world-class performer with the red ball in hand, only bowling eight overs in the um, England second innings, it it just shows you really that those pitches have gone dead and, and have offered absolutely nothing, even with the new ball, to you know, world-class um, seamers. Really interesting stat I saw as well um, was that we've got to give a shout-out, I think, to Craig Brathwaite from a perseverance perspective, um, facing, I think, something like 663 balls um, in this test match. As a little bit of a comparison, that's about the same number that Phil Tufnell faced in his whole test uh, career. So um, yeah, a little bit of a uh, little bit of trivia there with it with an England West Indies flavour. But look, I've got to say that I, I I think that these pitches we'll talk about Jack Leach. I'm sure I'm really keen to get Lippy's views on his plans and the speeds that he bowled at and what he might have been able to do differently. But um, the spinners on show couldn't really um, exert any authority on the game. The seamers couldn't either, and it just looked too too flat. So I don't know what the answer is because I think when the ICC step in, that doesn't necessarily solve the problem because they've got a commercial interest in the result as well as the home board. Um, but ultimately, I think that you know that there has to be, I think, some sort of recourse. And um, I think I'm right in saying, Baldy, that the, the pitch in that second test in the Pakistan-Australia series was actually marked down by the umpires for being too flat. I, I don't know how they categorised it, but you know it, it was unacceptable or slightly poor or look I'm not sure what the wording was um, as a result of the fact that it didn't really offer a balance between bat and ball which is ultimately what I think we're looking for. Yeah it wasn't quite the shenanigans of Melbourne a few years ago but it was uh, it was mildly maligned I think it was the phraseology that was used it wasn't it was something like slightly below par but Look, the, the reality is, and what we've seen here in these two series, it is actually really hard to produce a cricket wicket that provides adequate balance between bat and ball over the course of a test match. Really hard to do that because if you provide too much assistance for the bowlers, you get a situation where the pitch deteriorates or spins from day one, ball one. We see that occasionally in India. Or you get a situation like you occasionally get in Sri Lanka or Pakistan or in Australia or New Zealand where batting just becomes easier and easier and easier and you end up with 470 for five or 252 for none. Or in this test match in the first innings, Pakistan now 180,000 for one after 57 overs. So it's really hard to find the right balance between bat and ball. And I think the other thing is that there's a very big difference between preparing wickets for first-class cricket and preparing wickets for test cricket. Because in first-class cricket, batters will make a mistake. So you can put a road out there in a first-class game and batters will make a mistake and they'll nick off and, and you'll, you'll more than likely get a result. But in test cricket, there needs to be some assistance for the bowlers either in the first innings, the first morning of the test match, or in the last couple of days of the test match in terms of deterioration, variable bounce, more, more and more spin and what have you, in order to engineer, if you like, a result in each test match. So it's a very, very fine line that these curators have to walk and I don't blame them 
for you know occasionally not being able to manufacture a wicket that does all of the things that we require it to do and it's okay for wickets to not be homogenous let's be let's face it it's okay and it's actually exciting for the game of test cricket if there are different conditions that you have to play in and it gives us something to talk about it gives players the opportunity to test their skills in different environments and if all the wickets were produced exactly the same way we'd have one day cricket which is 400 plays 435 and no one ever gets a wicket ever again yeah, I think for, you know, listening to you guys talk, I think that's the, the trickiest part about these two pitches is that we didn't get, in an ideal world, day four and five, it would have started to spin. We saw spinners bowl a lot of overs on those day, on those days, in, both in Pakistan and in the West Indies, but they were on, that was basically because it was too hard for the, the fast bowlers to bowl and they just couldn't get anything out of it. So they were just churning through the overs with their spinners rather than actually bowling with them as attacking weapons. You, you know, you're talking about Leach there. You know, unfortunately, I'm going to disappoint you, Binksy, in that I, I haven't been able to watch a huge amount other than the highlights. And um, you know, the highlights of those Leach, the highlights that I've seen of Leach, he seemed to get the most impact when he bowled a lot quicker out of the pitch and bowled quite full. When he was able to bowl full, he was able to, you know that's when he could get his edges on those final days. It was it was the pace, because if he didn't bowl with that pace, then it was very easy just to play it off the pitch or, you know, even come down to it or, or do whatever. So, I mean, that's that's really the dream that you're, you're getting. I don't, you know, I don't really, I suppose you, you, the dream is that you've got this first hour maybe that's quite tough, first session that's quite tough. The rest of two, day one, day two, day three can be flat as anything if uh, if you ask me. And then on day four and five, it starts to spin. And those are the things we just haven't seen so far. Do you think this is more of a reflection on the, the quality of spin bowling that's going around at the moment? I mean, if you told me that Murley was going to bowl 60 overs and he wouldn't have an impact, uh, I wouldn't believe you. Warren, you know, all those greats, Jason Crazier, Michael Beer, um, <laughs> Bo these guys... You know, if if I had not, you know, someone told me that you know they were they were going to bowl long spells and not take wickets, I, I wouldn't wouldn't believe you. So, uh, Jack Leach has probably bowled more overs in this series than he has between now and when he played in India at the start of last year or whenever that was. So, I mean, and then put on top of that, just talking about England in in particular, they left they leave their world class seam attack at home. They leave left you know eleven hundred, twelve hundred wickets um, back at home. I don't know if we can blame the 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 curators for them not being able to bowl sides out i think it's a completely fair point about the spin i mean you know you look around the world and and spin we've talked about it uh a lot i think in the past that spin really just hasn't been able to have much of an impact in test cricket outside of india and you know i mean there's there's been times in sri lanka where it has and and playing a part but you know that there are it's it's i think that that leads to uh, completely that spinners are, go into these situations where they, they're set to bowl on the final day to win you a test and they just don't have those reps. They don't have the uh, the, the money in the bank to to even back themselves to go, look, I know that if I bowl, I, I'm going to bowl, if I bowl 40 overs, I'm going to bowl eight wicket-taking balls and five of them are going to go to hand and we're going to win. And it, it just, yeah, just no one's really getting that opportunity anymore. And, and I suppose in India, if you turn it round, it's almost too easy at times on on some of those pitches that if you are very consistent, the ball does something and you take those wickets anyway and you don't have to maybe earn them as as much as you do on on other grounds. And yeah, I think it's a fair point, but you know, I think that the pitches probably do have a bit to play there as well. 
we'll move on from a couple of series which, let's face it, um, have, have sometimes induced uh, sleep rather than excitement and move on to the excitement of the Women's World Cup. We've just had a change in our COVID settings here in New Zealand, which means that the grounds are going to be a little bit fuller from this weekend onwards as we come into the uh, culmination of this tournament. But got to start really, I suppose, from a white fern perspective. Mathematically, I think um, you guys can still qualify. Lippy Baldy may have a, a handy explainer up his sleeve um, as to what those permutations are. Um, but all but gone from a uh, from the tournament on home soil, which has got to be really, really disappointing because you'd have hoped that you were going to make that final four, I think, coming into the tournament. Oh, absolutely. And um, yeah, I mean, f- frustration is, is the main feeling that I have. I mean, I just feel like it's so clear that New Zealand has had the talent to be right in this tournament. I mean, you know, you look at that that will uh, that West Indies loss in particular. That that's looking now particularly costly with the way that the West Indies have kind of fallen off the pace since those opening couple of games. But yeah, the White Ferns two wins from and four losses from their six games, as you say, all but mathematically out of that semi final race. But it could so easily be five one. And I I just I just yeah, just so many little things that have added up together to contribute to the losses, but. Uh, I don't know. I can I could rant on for for hours. I think about um, my frustrations here and things. But Baldy, why don't you you give us a bit of uh, a rundown of how they could actually still make it to to bring a little bit of positivity into the uh, the chat. Stu, do you remember the nineteen ninety four Jim Carrey movie Dumb and Dumber? Do you remember that film? <laughs> I do where, remember it. Where, where Jim Carrey's character Lloyd Christmas stands in front of Mary Swanson and asks her, "What are the chances of a guy like him going out with a girl like her?" And she says, like one in a million. And he says, so you're saying there's a chance. Well, <laughs> I'm here to tell you there's a chance. It's not a likely chance. It might be one in a million, but there is a chance. So here's what's got to happen. New Zealand have to win against Pakistan, and they have to win handsomely to improve their net run rate. But it's not the net run rate that's going to get them into the final. It's a sequence of Lemony Snicket-like unfortunate events that would have to befall all the other teams for New Zealand to leapfrog them. So let's see what happens. New Zealand's chance, South Africa beat the West Indies and beat them handsomely, and England get no more than one point from their last two matches. Or if England gets to six points and both their matches rained out, the number of wins takes precedence. So for all practical purposes, New Zealand their campaign is all but over. But they have to win handsomely against Pakistan, 100, 100 runs plus, hope that South Africa beat the West Indies and New Ze- and England lose their last two games or at most get one point from their last two matches. Yeah, look, it's 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 not looking promising. Is is basically, uh, yeah, I, I'm going to take that line of thinking I, I can't get too excited. And I mean, look, I, we knew at the start that a lot was going to be riding on that, that top four for New Zealand. And... I don't know. Just the way that they've they've been able, to, the way that they've finished their innings has been, I think, the biggest frustration for me. Because in so many of those games, they've been in situations where they were positive situations. They were all stacking up to uh, positions where they could put on big totals or get in the, get in winning positions. But then they've just collapsed and and just not been able to bat fifty overs. Even at times, it seems like uh, they've been. You know, the tactics have been all wrong at moments, throwing Leah to hoo-hoo up the order in situations where it would have been better just to knock it around and, and take singles. I don't know, just really, really frustrating stuff. 
I guess um, the only time I think that they've really had control uh, consistently is when Amelia Kerr's bowling. When she's been bowling, there seems to be some semblance of control over what's happening with the game. But apart from that, uh, they're getting pasted all around the park sometimes, you know, um, especially towards the end of the innings, like you said. But that's not only... Um, unique to New Zealand. I mean, Australia is having to chase down some fairly large totals as well. And, and that's what I kind of want to talk about a little bit about Meg Lanning. Um, I know that's on our run sheet. She's uh, really, she's, she's batting incredibly. She's averaging 53.98 with 1500s. And I was reading today, or well, I saw a little infographic that 10 of those were in success, 10 of her hundreds have been in successful run chases, which I think is quite special. Baldy, where does Meg Lanning sit at the moment, in the all-time list for Batswoman? She's got to be up there, doesn't she? I mean, in terms of run scored, she's got a long way to go to catch Mitali Raj, who I think that has 7,700 one-day international runs. It must be said, too, at an average above 50. So Mitali Raj is no slouch with the bat. 7,700 runs at an average above 50. That's Coley-like in terms of output. And she's been around for 20 years or, or maybe even slightly more than that in international women's cricket. So Meg Lanning, from a purely statistical point of view, has got a long way to go. And there and there are only probably a handful of women cricketers who've averaged over 45. There might be 10, maybe 11 in the history of women's ODI cricket, and four or five of them are playing in this tournament. So you've got Raj, you've got um, Lanning, you've got Perry, uh, you've got Susie Bates, I think, averages above 45 in, in women's international cricket as well. So, yeah, we have been treated to an absolute display of, of powerful batting in this tournament. It's been wonderful to watch. Is Meg Lanning the best Australian cricketer, female cricketer of all time? She's got to be close. I, I think she's probably, by the time she retires, going to take all comers in terms of the records and the average and so forth. So I would say Belinda Clark, uh, Karen Rolton, Blackwell and and Meg Lanning are, are, the, are the Mount Rushmore, I think, if you like, of Australian batters. And, and Meg Lanning probably shades those girls even now. I mean, you have a look. No one gets close to her 15 international hundreds. I think Susie Bates from New Zealand is second with 11 of those hundreds. Um, so she's been absolutely conquering all before her over the last 11 years. And she's only just turned 30. So, you know, she could play for another four or five years and rack up another two or 3,000 runs. And all of a sudden she's got... 8,000 international runs at an average of 50-plus. I mean, it's a, a fantastic career at an average that I think at the moment is better than Ricky Ponting. So, you know, putting all of that in perspective, you've got to make a case that she's, if not the best women's batter that we've ever had in Australia, certainly she's on Mount Rushmore already. And, and Baldy, uh, I know that you are always reluctant to do this, but, you know, we've talked about how I guess the semi-final race is hotting up. Maybe Binksy wants to touch on on England starting to find a bit of form in a second. But like, are you prepared now with what you've seen that that they are just going to win Australia? I mean, they're just conquering everyone. South Africa put them under pressure. They chased that down with relative ease. I don't know. I I I, I repeat what I said last time. I think we're being treated really to watch this Australian women's side. They're just such a classy outfit and. They just never feel like they're under pressure because there's so much talent all that all the way through that lineup. Oh, you know what's been particularly pleasing is Australia have been put under pressure throughout this tournament. West Indies have put them under pressure. England put them under pressure, almost chasing down 300 plus. Uh, 
South Africa put them under tremendous pressure to get 270 and then have Australia kind of two for eight, I think it was at some stage. They, you know, they, they were under pressure, Australia, but man, they've got some classy players in that lineup. They've got Lanning, they've got Beth Mooney, they've got Rachel Haynes, who I think is the third leading run scorer in the tournament. She's got 330 plus, and, you, and you're forgetting about Alyssa Healy. Um, so, you know, there's lots and lots of classy players that Australia can just roll out whenever the, whenever the scenario suits them. And if you don't like all of that, we'll roll out Talia McGrath or we'll roll out Ash Gardner or we'll roll out Jess Jonathan to, to bowl the over of a champion to win the game for Australia with the ball. So, look, there's a lot to like about this Australian side. And you're right, it's an absolute joy to watch them play because from whatever situation it feels like at the moment, Touchwood Australia have had the answers. And what I've really enjoyed in this tournament is they've been put under pressure. They've responded incredibly well to that pressure. They've come through in one big moment. So hopefully, again, Touchwood, that will stand them in great stead for the semifinals. But Binksy, just throwing over to you, this England women's side now played five, lost the first three, now won two, got to keep winning to stay in the tournament. It's starting to feel a little bit like 99 World Cup time for this England women's side. Yeah, look, and I guess drawing the parallels with 99, I'd probably also go as far as to draw the parallels with that um, Australian men's 99 World Cup campaign, all but out of it um, into, I think, the Super Sixes stage, you know, had must-win game after must-win game uh, and managed to get themselves, you know, over the line against Pakistan in that final. Look, I guess there's a lot of water to go under the bridge in terms of results, but I think what's really exciting now, and um, it's really interesting that you are so positive about your home nation. You, you've kind of really put the moz on them there, I think. But is that, you know, from an England perspective, they've got to play Pakistan and Bangladesh that leading into the tournament, you'd have expected them to win comfortably. Pakistan have just upset, I think, the West Indies um, in a, you know, a small run chase. So they're coming off the back of a victory. So, you know, I, I don't think you can kind of count them out. Um, I guess what's really key now is this could come down to a bit of weather, a DLS calculation. Um, we saw it, obviously, unfortunately, for, for New Zealand in that game against England, an untimely injury for someone that, you know, was batting really, really well at the top of the, uh, the, top, of the top of the order, Sophie Devine, for, for the White Ferns. So it, we're now into that kind of knockout cricket. So I, I just hope that someone can really exert that level of pressure on Australia um, and, and, you know, kind of have an exciting game uh, for them in their semi-final. Um, but yeah, it, it really is all to play for. And um, uh, me going from writing off the England women to now, um, if they can scrape uh, a couple of victories together, their destiny is in their own hands. If they win both of those games, they're through to the semi-finals. Um, they can still probably go through even if a couple of other results go against them as well. And then it really is knockout cricket. So, yeah, who could ask for more in, in this kind of tournament? Um, really exciting to see whoever gets through. And I, I guess just a shout out for South Africa as well. We, you know, we didn't really talk about them a hell of a lot in the in the preview piece. We, we focused a lot on the White Ferns, on England, um, on West Indies as a potential challenger. And, and South Africa have just gone about their business pretty steadily. Um, and, and again, could be dangerous leading into those uh, those final games. Yeah, absolutely, they can be. South Africa are absolutely the real deal. Lost to Australia, notwithstanding, they are the real deal. They've got a little bit of a tough run home. I'll just run through the England run home for you quickly, Adam, to give you the the situation. 
Net run rate for England is good, plus 0.327, which means that wins against Pakistan and Bangladesh would likely boost that. So they're going to get a bit of a boost in terms of their net run rate. That good net run rate will stand them in good stead, even if they don't take full points and end up on eight points. There's still a chance of qualifying if the West Indies lose to South Africa and stay on six points. And at the moment on form, you would predict that to happen. So still a chance for your England side, even if they don't take full points in the last two games. But uh, two points obviously would put New Zealand out of the tournament for true, and four points would give them a really good chance of qualifying. For the West Indies, well, they've got to win that game against South Africa to have any chance. Then they have to hope that South Africa continue winning and beat India, and that would eliminate India, Australia, South Africa, England, all would then um, qualify with the West Indies. So the West Indies have a challenge, and their net run rate's really poor. They're minus 0.88, so... They have to they have to go four and three. Any loss would put them out of the tournament. But I'm really liking what South Africa are putting on the table at the moment. They've got big games against the West Indies and India, so their future is in their own hands. They've already got eight points out of their five games, so one win from here would put them into the semi-finals. And to be knocked out, they'd have to lose both of their games by huge margins. So. You know, South Africa are in the box seat as far as those chasing teams are concerned, and India as well have got their um, their destiny if their own hands in, in your, if you like with their one game remaining against South Africa. They too have got a really really good net run rate, so they would have to lose and lose very very handsomely to ha- to give any of the chasing pack a chance of catching them, which is probably unlikely. So those two teams are, I think, probably India. South Africa in the box seat to join them, and then it will be a case of whether it's the West Indies or England that will join them in that semi-finals. And as you say, from there, anything can happen. Well, boys, let's have a quick round table before we leave the Women's World Cup. Who are the three teams that are trying to earn the right to play Australia in the final, guys? Uh, I think it. I think West Indies will be the the team to miss out of that. So uh, yeah, I think England's hit, England's hitting form at the right time playing the, the sides that you would expect them to win. And, and we, yeah, West Indies just been dropping away. So, you know, as Baldy said, South Africa, Australia, India, and, and it's, uh, yeah, England England uh, is the way I look at it. And I think actually that will provide us with the best semifinals that we can hope for and, you know, probably some very close games because the games between all of those sides um, have been, you know, you, you, you wouldn't have been able to predict the results necessarily at the start of those games. And Lippy, can you look past Australia as a winner? Uh, absolutely not. I've I've said it all along, really. That I just think that they yeah, too too classy. And um, yeah, no. Until someone proves me wrong and can put them under pressure and can actually keep them down, uh, then yeah, I just can't see how anyone can beat them. If all of those permutations go to plan, though, it will be an England-Australia semi-final 1v4. So that will be an absolute humdinger of a game. That was a good game early on in the series. England ran Australia quite close with the bat. A little bit goes England's way in that semi-final, and it's a repeat of um, of five years ago when England are playing for the title and Australia are knocked out in the semi, although the different... Um, different opponent this time so there's a there's a good chance for England if they if they get into the tournament with a bit of Raj if you could just say that word for me momentum thank you very much with that momentum then they're a chance of tipping up Australia and all it takes is one game and you're in the final and anything can happen well guys I think Raj and I would agree with those permutations as to the likely runners and riders in the semi-finals and look I can't look past Australia either to be lifting 
and that trophy as much as border you you want to um, try and uh, do the reverse psychology let's move on then to New Zealand versus the Netherlands opportunity for some players that wouldn't have ordinarily got a go uh, Lippi and Raj Michael Bracewell is on fire um, so yeah thoughts on on that so far Lippi yeah, well, look, we've had a couple of warm-up games. Uh, one of the, the T20s was, was rained out between the New Zealand 11 and the Netherlands. But, yeah, as you mentioned, Michael Bracewell is looking every bit the international cricketer in those two games. On fire with bat and ball, scored 127 not out, then 81. Took two wickets in both games and, and two in captaining the side to, you know, a really young New Zealand 11 side against the Netherlands to two wins. I mean, it's a great opportunity for him to really show what he can do and continue that form and, and push his claim for, you know, some of these tours and things that we've got coming up, particularly in the, you know, the white ball formats. And obviously it's another big year with the T20 World Cup and he had a great super smash. So, yeah, great opportunity for someone like him to, to get their chance when all these IPL players are away. We now move to the T20 on, on uh, the Black Caps proper playing on, on Friday night at McLean Park and then sort of three ODIs next week, Tuesday at the Bay Oval and then Sunday and Monday at, at Seddon Park. But, you know, I, I guess as we've said, all these guys are away at the, the IPL, but it is another chance to see the boys in black again. Raj, is there anything in particular that you're sort of hoping to see throughout this series? Yeah, I guess there are a few players that I, I do have my eye on uh, for this series. I guess it's a hard one for me to actually get really excited for this series. I feel like it's definitely at the end of our summer here. It's actually raining quite heavily. It has been for the last few days. But um, yeah, and and you know we've lost all those players over to to the IPL, and um, that takes a little bit of excitement away from me. Away from me, but. Uh, some big questions for me. I want to see Ish Sodi. I want to see him dominate. Uh, due to the people that are away and also to the fact that he is now really our premier white ball spinner, um, I'd like to see him bowl really with some aggression and sort of take wickets. Uh, I don't think that he plays that holding role well. I think really he is there to take wickets for us and I want to see him do that. Uh, from the batting side, I do want to see Mark Chapman get a go firstly and then... I put him in the kind of category along with uh, Glenn Phillips. They're the sort of next cabs off the rank, the younger players who are going to come in uh, when the likes of Guptill and um, Ross Taylor and Henry Nichols move on. When those guys are there, these these are the young fellas that are going to come through. So I would like to see um, see that translate to the international stage because they have been scoring um, in domestic cricket quite heavily. Uh, Phillips has been doing it around the world in the... Um, franchise tournaments. So those are the two people that I really have uh, my eye on, Ish Sodi and Mark Chapman. And look, um, while we're on New Zealand, talking about that Black Caps side, there's been a, uh, an addition to the coaching staff, a uh, friend of the podcast and uh, Rickett and Cricket Club uh, alumni, Dean Brownlee's been added to the uh, to the coaching staff as, as um, the batting coach, sort of covering Luke Ronke's uh stint away from the side to, to coach Auckland while Heinrich Milan has gone to Ireland so a bit of a roundabout there in the coaching circles but yeah personally just great to see Dean get a get a shot record and cricket club producing the the best brains in the business and um interestingly enough and in since we're talking about coaching I saw that Daniel Vittori's joined the Australian coaching staff for for the one day setup over in Pakistan so 
yeah, very uh, very good to see New Zealand coaches uh, getting an opportunity in um, the international stage. Well, Lippy, it certainly wouldn't be a top order podcast without a Rickerton reference and wouldn't be a top order podcast without a little bit of a roundup as well of the New Zealand domestic scene. So you've got uh, some stuff, I guess, from this current round of Plunkett Shield games. Um, it feels more like uh, rowing weather in New Zealand at the moment <laughs> rather than uh, cricket weather. And that's been reflected in a few of the results, I think, with uh, games uh, uh, certainly CD uh, game just sort of meandering into a draw. But yeah, what's gone on in the Plunkett Shield this week? Yeah, you, you've hit the nail on the head really in the only game that did produce a result. Otago-Wellington was sort of heavily manufactured in terms of um, de- declarations and things. But you've got to give a shout out to Otago. They chased down 300 for three to, to actually win that game on the final day. Dale, Dale Phillips scoring 100 and Nick Kelly... Uh, getting an 80 odd not out to, to get them across the line, but probably uh, in terms of what you know the actual Plunkett Shield points table, it won't have much of an impact because Otago was was well down that ladder and um, yeah the sides pushing for for claims uh, were unable to to get results. But yeah, a couple of notable performances: Rickard and again uh, performing, Cole McConkey scoring 187 not out. We had Troy Robinson for Wellington 194 not out. So a couple of big scores, and look, if anyone wants to just watch one clip this weekend, you should all go uh, and watch my old mate Greg Hay from Nelson getting his castle absolutely destroyed by Zach Folks from from Canterbury. I might put the the New Zealand clip cricket uh, clip link in the show notes because it's definitely worth a watch. Poles everywhere. There's only one pole left standing, and um, big in swinger. Yeah, great great delivery, but. Yeah, as you say, rain really spoiled the week in the Plunkett Shield. Well, guys, that probably just about wraps up this episode of the Rickerton Order podcast. Um, (laughs) But one bit of breaking news for you guys that I know will uh, cause a little bit of uh, a reaction for a couple of you boys in a a positive way is um, Moen Ali looks like he might be stranded in the UK due to visa issues. So highly possible that Devon Conway slots into the top order for the CSK when the IPL um, gets underway. So just as I get you boys oh, he was, excited, we can, we, can, uh, we can wrap up there, can't we? He was going to be in there anyway, mate. Don't worry about that. He's, uh, I saw on the, the uh, betting odds today that he's about fourth for the orange cap or whatever in, uh, in a few things. So, yeah, he's not going to be a sleeper for anyone. Don't worry about Devon. No worries. Well, let's just hope that the uh, New Zealand media don't do their normal thing and uh, and chop down their tall poppies uh, when he inevitably fails on the biggest stage. But guys, look, all jokes aside, we will end the podcast there. Genuinely wish Devon Conway all the best. He seems a, a really um, a really top guy and um, look has been an exciting emergence onto the cricketing scene over the course of the last 12 months. So uh, no hard feelings, Devon. You're welcome on the podcast um, anytime, even if, of course, you've got no affiliation to Rickerton. But that does just about wrap up this episode of the Top Order podcast. Please do dip into the feed for our IPL preview shows both one and two you can also if you want to see our ugly mugs uh, jump on our youtube channel and look at a video of that as well at some point um, once we get around to editing it um, but that's it for us um, in auckland here tonight uh, stay dry if you're in the north island um, good night and god bless see you soon